The Catholic Channel Sirius XM 129 presents Just Love with your host, Monsignor Kevin Sullivan, Executive Director of Catholic Charities of the Archdiocese of New York. Welcome to Just Love. I'm Monsignor Kevin Sullivan. This is our weekly conversation about what is going on in the world viewed through the prism of our Catholic teaching, our Catholic values, our Catholic wisdom. And, you know, one of the more important documents of the Second Vatican Council basically began with saying something like this. I'll paraphrase it. I won't get it exactly right. But basically said the hopes, the joys, the griefs, the sorrows of humankind are the griefs, the the hopes, the sorrows of the followers of Jesus. And so the point that they were making is that with Jesus taking on our humanity, saving us in our humanity, that basically whatever is going on in the human race is of concern to the believers in Jesus, that we're not angels and our sisters and brothers in wherever they are in the world, uh, whether they be right next door to us within our own families, our own schools, our own jobs, all of that is within kind of the purview, the vision, the prism of those who are the followers of Jesus. And so over our 2000 year history, we have developed a perspective in which we um, say that there are certain values that we think enhance humankind. And we talk about those in a variety of different ways. And so what we do at Just Love is we look at various topics, which I suspect that many of the listeners to the Catholic Channel would say, well, wait a minute, that's not a Catholic topic. That's not a religious topic. But the perspective that we take is that any topic is a topic that is affecting somebody in the world or some group of people in the world. And what we try to do is to say, okay, yes, that's not a topic that's inside a church building. That's not a religious topic, but that the followers of Jesus that the disciples of Christ bring the wisdom of that community of faith for 2000 years and say, okay, it's going on in the world. How do we understand it? How do we think about it? And what should our actions be? If it's a good thing to further it, to promote it, to spread it further. And if it's a bad thing, what do we have to do to diminish it, to stop it, to reduce the hurt that is going on to the dignity of the human person? So that's why we look at things from sports, psychology. We look at things from the perspective of music, a variety of things in order to um, kind of bring that wisdom to bear on those situations. Well, <clears throat> this Memorial Day weekend, what we're going to look at is a few things related to war. Memorial Day weekend in the United States is the weekend in which we honor <clears throat> those in the armed forces who have died in various wars. And one of the things we're going to look at this week is, well, people do tragically not only die in wars, but they also get wounded in wars and they need medical treatment afterwards. And there is a whole kind of veterans um, healthcare system. There is policy for veterans and, you know, in recent years, it's come under some criticism because some of the deficiencies that were pointed out in that system. So I'm delighted that we're going to be able to speak a little bit on this Memorial Day weekend 
with somebody who's an expert in the area of, you know, veterans policy, looking at health care and a variety of other things. So I'm happy to welcome to uh, Just Love, Carrie Farmer, who is a senior policy research uh, and director at the Rand Corporation's Epstein Family Veterans Policy. Um, Dr. Farmer, thank you for being with us on Just Love. Thanks so much for having me. Great. So give our listeners a little bit sense of your own um, journey and how did you wind up in the current position? What got you interested in this? How'd you get to where you are now? A great question. Um, I myself am not a veteran, um, but my father is a veteran. Um, He served in the Army National Guard. Um, And so I grew up hearing his stories of his military service. Um, And uh, shortly, uh, as, as part of my research training, Um, uh, Some of my research training was at um, a VA hospital in uh, Brockton, Massachusetts, um, where I was exposed to research on um, veterans with serious mental illness, which is uh, something that I focused on at the time. Um, And then when I came to the Rand Corporation, um, uh, many of my colleagues had been working on uh, really interesting projects related to how to provide high quality care to veterans, um, both through uh, VA healthcare and outside of VA, as well as care for service members and their families through the military health system. Um, I grew very interested in that work and have been doing it for the last 13 years. You know, I think probably a lot of our listeners probably know what the RAND Institute is, but some may not. So give just a little thumbnail for our listeners about what is, uh, what is RAND? That's a great question. Also, um, so RAND is a nonprofit, nonpartisan research organization. So we do, um, you can think of it sort of like a think tank, um, but all of our, all of our research is publicly available um, and is is open for anybody to read. So we have, uh, we do research on all um, aspects related to national security, as well as to uh, domestic policies as well. Okay. So thank you. Thank you for that. So um, this is, you know, uh, Memorial Day weekend is coming up. And so, you know, the issue of veterans and veterans health care, the veterans hospitals, they've been in the news for the past decade or so. Um, can you just give, again, give our listeners just a little bit of background? Some are more familiar than others. What has been some of the kind of the controversy or the, the public um, items that have been in the news? Why did they make the news? So that people have a sense of the landscape of what we're talking about. Sure. Well, it may be helpful to start with thinking about where do veterans get health care and okay. what population right. does, uh, does the Department of Veterans Affairs serve? Um, it's, a, it's generally a common misconception that all veterans get their care from VA. Um, uh, as it turns out, that's not the case, that it's really only about um, about half of veterans are enrolled at, uh, uh, through VA for their health care. Um, and so there's 18 million veterans currently alive in the United States now. And in any given year, 6 million veterans get some care from VA. Um, so 9 million are eligible to get care from VA or enrolled in VA and about 6 million a year get their care from VA. Let me ask you a little bit of a wonky research question. Does, yeah. uh, does the kind of the penetration of, of where the percentage of veterans that use the VA system, does it vary by regions in the country? 
I'm not sure. It's, okay. it, it's um, veterans are eligible for VA care based on their length of military service. Okay. So having served at least two years or more in active duty status, okay. um, uh, having a military service connected healthcare condition, so some type okay. of illness or injury that um, was incurred because of their military service. Okay. Um, and then, then um, income as well. So there are okay. income um, standards too. Okay. I'm sorry. I'm sorry I interrupted. Keep going. No, that's great. It's a um, VA is a really complicated healthcare organization because it's responsible for po- providing healthcare across the entire United States, right. um, and uh, and veterans live um, not uniformly across the United States. So I think if you think geographically, um, you know, I don't know the exact percentages, but for sure in areas where there's a higher concentration of veterans. Right. Um, it's more likely that there will be more users of VA facilities in those locations. You know, Dr. Farmer, it's interesting because I think I just learned something that I didn't know. Um, so there is an income qualif- qualification. So let me phrase it in a, in a very kind of a layman's way. So a rich veteran can't get health care from the veterans hospital system? Not if they have no service-connected health condition okay. or a very uh, so it's it's really this relationship between um, between all of these factors. So if well, me, if there's so a better for the sake of our listeners and me, yep. let me phrase it my way, and then you correct me when I get okay. it wrong. So in other words, if you're a veteran who got wounded in in the in the military, even if you're rich, you can get help at the veterans. That's right. But if you're in the military and you didn't get wounded and you're rich, you can't. That's right. Okay. I got it. I got it. But if you were were in the military and you didn't get wounded and you are not rich, you may be able to get care for VA. Okay. Okay. So, all right. So keep going. Tell us about the system then. You said it's complex. So let our listeners understand kind of how it works for those who are eligible. Sure. So it's, uh, um, I'll try not, I won't use super policy wonky um, <laughs> terms, but you know, for, for those who are, for those who are really excited about health policy, VA operates as like a staff model HMO. And so by that, I mean, all VA owns and operates all of its facilities and hire all VA uh, healthcare providers um, work on salary for VA. So they are the, the way that they are paid is not an insurance system. It's a, uh, it's a healthcare provider network. Right. Um, so providers aren't reimbursed by the number of patients that they see or the number of procedures that they perform. They have a, they have a, they are paid by um, just straight by salary. And that's so really, let me, let me again, let me just ask you because, and this is more for me. Um, I mean, I, I, I live in the New York metropolitan area, um, you know, I know there's a big VA hospital in the Bronx. I think there's a VA hospital in Manhattan on 23rd Street. There probably are others. Um, is the VA is the VA health system provided actually at those hospitals, or are there VA doctors? Do, do, are there victim, VA doctors' offices in in communities in addition to being on the campuses of hospitals? Yes, but not as like a standalone provider office. So VA operates these big VA medical centers, so VA hospitals, and then also outpatient clinics as well. Okay. Um, And those can be sprinkled somewhere in the uh, broad geographic area of where VA hospital is. Okay, good. 
Well, I'm learning a lot. So please keep going. I'm going to learn a lot by the end well, of this our- this is one of my favorite topics. So I'm happy to happy to talk about it. Um, so some of, the, some of the challenges that VA faces is that VA, uh, VA takes all veterans who are eligible. So if there's a sudden increase in demand for VA healthcare. So for example, um, you know, with returning veterans from the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, there were more veterans um, separating from the military and needing medical care. And so um, VA has, uh, you know, some of the issues that came up about um, 10 years ago or so were um, more demand for healthcare than there was supply. So there were veterans were facing longer wait times for getting care. Um, and that turned into that turned into a scandal uh, because there were um, uh, concerns about veterans not getting the care that they needed and VA not being able to meet that demand. Um, uh, Secretary Dr. Fama, if my memory serves me right, that was one of the concerns. But wasn't wasn't a major concern that that the VA officials lied about it? There was concern that the way that they were calculating the wait lists or the, yeah. the way that the uh, wait lists were being recorded or their transparency about the wait lists um, was not totally transparent. And so, um, you know, I don't think in the end that there we, were not we non non yeah. researchers say they lied. I mean, I, I understand the nuances <laughs> of what you're you're saying, but I get it. OK, thank you. <laughs> I don't mean to put words in your mouth, but anyway. In the end, with the, the investigations at the end of the day, to my knowledge, did not find that there were veterans that died because they were on a wait list. Um, right. But there was a lot of concern about that at the time. So then there was then there was this big push to increase availability of healthcare for veterans, and a solution that was brought forward was more care that was provided in the private sector that was paid for by VA. Did that ever happen? It sure did. So there was a, uh, in 2014, Congress passed a bill, the Veterans Access, I'm going to get the acronym wrong, but it's Veterans Access and Accountability and Choice Act, something like that. Um, And uh, it's commonly known as the Choice Act. And so that first uh, established a mechanism. VA has always provided care in the private sector through um, individual agreements with providers, and those were all mostly managed at the local level. So this was the first time at the national level there was a um, a, a requirement, a legislative requirement, that VA um, increase the way and consolidate the way that it was providing care and access to care in the community in the private sector. Um, and then, and that was intended as a temporary program. And then in um, 2019, the Mission Act was passed, and that made this program permanent. Um, and so it's one of VA's challenges now is, is managing an integrated healthcare system where, uh, most care is being provided in VA facilities by VA providers, but some care is being provided in the community and, uh, there, there's going to be, there is, and there will continue to be challenges in trying to coordinate that care, um, and, and ensure that veterans are getting, uh, the high quality care that they deserve. So you mentioned we're we're speaking with uh, Carrie Farmer, who is a senior policy researcher and director at the Rand Corporation. We're speaking on this um, as Memorial Day weekend is coming up, the care that our veterans are getting health care after they leave the 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 military. So um, let me let me kind of ask you a little bit of a of a 
loaded question, okay? Um, and I'll give me a moment to set it up. Um, I'm going to wind up asking, how good is the care at veterans hospitals? I mean, you know, uh, to be a little negative, you know, one of those expressions which is used, whether it's right or wrong, is, oh, that work is good enough for government. And the and kind of the understanding of that phrase is, which means it's inferior to what you would get, you know, someplace else. And I mean, one of the things we say at Catholic Charities to our staff is we want to provide care. We want to provide help, not health care, but whatever type of services we're doing at Catholic Charities. We want to provide it in a way that if our family members needed the service, we would refer them to them. We would provide the care in the way that we wanted. So let me put you a little bit on the spot is, you know, would you prefer your family to be cared for at a veterans hospital or at the Mayo Clinic? Well, for my, well, I guess I know that's it's not, an unfair I really question. Right comparison. So the, the comparison is not, not everybody goes to Mayo Clinic. Uh, you know, that that is a, um, only it's a small population of people that get to go to Mayo Clinic. Everybody else is getting care from in their own communities, right. which is really variable. And some of it is great and some of it is not great. Um, on the whole, when we study this question, right. VA care is as good or better than the private sector on all types of measures, including um, veteran satisfaction with their care and their, their types of care experiences that they have, um, which is which tends to be surprising uh, to many people that 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 is the case. Um, we hear a lot about bad things that happen um, at VA hospitals, but I can assure you those bad things also happen at private sector hospitals. It just doesn't become front page news. Um, so it's, uh, I would be, you know, for myself, I would be happy to get care from a VA hospital if I were, if I were eligible to do so. And many of my um, friends and colleagues who are veterans, um, you know, this is anecdotal. They, they really appreciate the care that they get yeah. from VA. So what do you see, or, or let me ask you kind of a little bit of a personal, personal professional question. Um, what are you interested in researching further about <laughs> veterans? Oh, I think we can make it work. Yeah, I think we can make it work. What are, what are you interested in, um, in, um, uh, in researching further to learn more about uh, the veteran system? Well, one thing that I'm personally really interested in is how this, um, how the community care aspect uh, of VA provided healthcare is working. Um, how, how, what, what can we find out about the quality of care that veterans are getting outside VA? Um, uh, what is, you know, what is VA doing to ensure that the care that they're getting is timely and is high quality? Um, I think that's that's one of the biggest challenges is that VA has a lot of ability to understand the care that it's providing through its own providers and facilities, um, but less ability to have uh, have a lot of information about what's happening out in the community. I know you mentioned you said that after the Choice Act, that a certain amount was provided in the community and and even before that it was. Um, In a sense, is it like 10 percent, 20 percent? How much is is in the community? It differs based on the type of care. But for example, um, one of the statistics I've heard recently is that um, for mental health care, at the moment, 47% of mental health care consults are happening in the community. 
Okay. And what about primary care? I believe most primary care is happening at VA uh, because that is VA's role is intended to be as the, um, you know, as the main coordinator of care where the bulk of care is happening at VA and then for certain episodes of care. So for example, if um, somebody needed a surgery or a, a course of treatment somewhere that that that's the type of care that might happen outside VA. Early on, you kind of mentioned a little bit of the financial um, part of the VA where um, where doctors are paid and they're on staff and everybody is on on staff. Um, is is the revenue for um, for the hospital? Does that come through insurance, federal appropriations or a combination of both? How is the, how is it actually funded? It is part of the federal budget. So VA prepares its budget request to Congress um, using, you know, they have, yeah. they have a model to predict what they think the demand will be in the coming years and what the, and what the needs will be and present their budget request um, to Congress. And it gets uh, included as part of the, as part of the federal budget process. So um, there, is there no insurance that is involved? That's right. So, I mean, as a taxpayer, I don't think I like that because if if a veteran is eligible and um, is using the services, but is working for a company also that has insurance, why shouldn't me as a taxpayer uh, take advantage of that insurance that the person has as an employee of that company? VA does. So there are some veterans who have multiple forms of insurance. So a veteran could have their employer insurance. They could also have TRICARE at the same time and get care from VA. Um, So VA does make an attempt to to bill other insurance, um, but it's not a requirement. So it requires a veteran telling VA that they have this other type of insurance. So it's it, it, there is some effort to recoup some of that cost from other insurers where possible. Okay, I get it. They're not going to make me head of VA, but I would make it not optional. <laughs> I'd make them. Uh, I'd make them do it. It just seems to me it's a no-brainer to be able to kind of increase because I think there's always an issue: is there enough resources to provide the care that is that is needed? And that's uh, uh, yeah. you did mention something, so let's pursue this a little bit. I think, you know, in recent years, not very recent, but the whole notion of of mental health, of post-traumatic stress syndrome, how is the VA and VA system trying to deal with that, which has become an increasing issue of concern and awareness among a, a great number of people? Yeah, VA is really a leader in this space. Um, VA not only provides care, but also conducts research and uh, does a lot of training of medical professionals in the country. Um, And so they're really a leader in terms of um, studying and coming up with uh, new treatments and really the best treatments um, for these conditions that are much that are more prevalent among veterans than um, than non-veterans. Um, and so VA, VA uses evidence-based forms of treatment. And so those are types of treatment that have been r- rigorously studied um, where there's, a, where there's a, a body of research to demonstrate that it is effective at improving symptoms. Um, and, uh, and that does not happen as often out in the private sector where mental health care 
mental health care is not is not always that rigorous. Do you, having kind of lived with working with this in, in a variety of ways, um, do you have any sense about, in contrary to other um, specialties, why so much of the mental health care is community-based and not in the hospitals? Do you have a sense of why that's the case? I think it just may be um, convenience, you know, relative to where veterans live. It may be, it may be more convenient to get care. They may live far further from a uh, VA facility um, where it's, you know, that's my, that that would be my guess that it's just, it it may be more convenient um, to them, but we really don't know anything about how good that care is relative to the care that they could be getting from VA. So given the, as you mentioned about 10 years ago, when there was, a lot of the um, controversy about care not being given, et cetera. I'm, I'm really, really pleased to hear that the research shows that even though there were problems that, um, that nobody died as a result of that, that's kind of very, very heartening to, to hear. But given the issue was raised up, um, have there been certain changes that you could share with our listeners that have kind of improved the system over the past 10 years? Um, yeah, there has, I mean, part of it has been um, it, certainly increasing access to this private sector care. So that has been right. um, provided a little bit of relief where some of the, some of those appointments could be provided in the community instead. Um, part of it is that the demand, it was sort of at the peak of veterans need for this type of healthcare, and that has started to decrease somewhat. So that has also um, started to decline and, and, um, and it hasn't been as, as much of an urgency and VA has changed, um, the way that it communicates about wait times as well, so that it's more transparent, um, that on every, uh, the, the website for each VA facility can, you know, veteran could find out how long, when, you know, how long it would be for the next available appointment. Right. Okay. Um, Dr. Farmer, thank you so much for taking the time to be uh, to be with us on Just Love. Is there one kind of final thing that you think we didn't cover that would help our listeners to understand better the care that is given at veteran at, at through the veteran system? Is there something we didn't cover that you'd like to make sure our listeners know? I think it's it's just that the VA uh, VA has really evolved to specialize in the treatment of veterans, and so really uh, really understanding the unique healthcare needs of veterans. So veterans who have um, complex traumatic injuries, um, including brain injuries, um, developing new mobility devices for veterans who are paralyzed or have other types of severe injuries, and as as we as we discussed, mental health care. So VA provides a really critical role in caring for veterans who have these um, unique and, uh, in many cases, very serious injuries from their military service. Dr. Fama, the RAND Institute, thanks so much for taking the time to be with us. And really, thanks for the research you do that um, provides good understanding information to make the system even better. So thank you very much for your work. And thanks for being with us on Just Love. Great. Thanks so much for having me. Great. Um, 
Tom, I think uh, we will take a break and we'll be back in just a moment. Just love, just love God, just love your neighbor, just love yourself. And if all 6 billion people of us in the world did that, our world certainly would be more just and it would be more compassionate. We'll be back in just a moment on the Catholic Channel, Sirius XM 129. Now, let's get back to Just Love and your host, Monsignor Kevin Sullivan. Welcome back to Just Love. I'm Monsignor Kevin Sullivan, our weekly conversation about what's going on in the world. And we are at approaching Memorial Day weekend. And so we thought we'd kind of talk this week about um, things related to the military. We spoke about healthcare for veterans. And in just a moment or two, we're going to speak about uh, military photography and uh, also how do other countries celebrate uh, Veterans Day? Um, but I do think it's, it's important for us to kind of point out a little bit, and I'll talk a little bit more about this at the end. You know, whenever we kind of talk about Memorial Day and war, we know that our first um, intention, our first perspective is how do we prevent war? And our own Catholic teaching, which does have a just war theory, that there are times when war is justified, but it is one of the clear principles of that. It should be as last resort when everything else is tried and to protect kind of basic human rights, you cannot do anything but uh, but for a country to defend itself. So there is 
so on this weekend, we do think about that. Um, you know, obviously, we think about what's going on in Ukraine and that <clears throat> seemingly, I, I don't know anybody who is can claim the invasion of with a straight face that the invasion of Russia uh, of the Ukraine is justified. And so um, so we do think about uh, war and peace and how we might bring how an end to that conflict might be brought about. But let's go now to our next guest. Our next guest is Blake Stilwell, who is a former U.S. Air Force combat photographer and um, to talk about this Memorial Day weekend and to talk about a variety of different uh, different things. Uh, Blake, thank you for joining us on Just Love. Hey, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. So what's an Air Force combat photographer do? Uh, well, mostly I did a lot of uh, video production, uh, but uh, they have uh, photographers and graphic designers that, uh, you know, combat correspondents. Uh, our main mission is to document the operation um, for a number of reasons, historical reasons being one of the most important, but also if something goes wrong, um, you know, if uh, a crime is committed, there's visual evidence. Uh, you know, it's used for lessons learned, for the historical record, and because the American people deserve to see what their troops are doing overseas. I mean, they're footing the bill, after all. So um, you do it. Um, you're actually up there in the plane. Oh, uh, we're so every branch of the military. I'm not sure about the Space Force. That's a little after my time. But every branch of the military has its document documentation forces. Um, combat camera when I was in the Air Force uh, was the Air Forces. But it was really a purple uh, effort. But every every branch worked together. Uh, you know, we were in Iraq, we were in Afghanistan, we were in uh, Lord knows where else. When I was in, it was the height of the global war on terror. So it wasn't just the air force that was pressed to the limits. Uh, we all were. So we, we really worked together. One of my best friends is an army combat photographer. We met, uh, during my service. Uh, but, uh, yeah. So anywhere the U S military goes, the potential for a combat cameraman to be there is pretty high. <laughs> How'd you get into that? Uh, uh, very lucky. I was, um, I joined the military the day after nine 11 and I, I didn't really put a lot of thought or effort into, uh, this major life decision that I'd chosen. Uh, so I just went to the recruiter. The, I, I got the Air Force because the recruiter, the Air Force recruiter was the only one there that day. <laughs> and uh, I said, give me a job. I don't know. I don't know what I'm doing, but uh, I'll, I'll do whatever. He's like, oh, well, we have this great thing. It's called Open General, uh, which I think is called Open Contract today. But it's basically the government chooses your job for you, which um, you know, I got pretty lucky. <laughs> so they, they, they kind of chose or assigned you to be a photographer? Uh, yeah, they did. So after basic training, I got my orders. Uh, I didn't really know what my job was, but I got these. Everybody else in my Air Force unit was going to places like Goodfellow, Keesler, you know, your standard Air Force training bases. I got Fort George G. Meade, Maryland, and uh, with the funny job of visual information production and documentation. So uh, really had no idea what that is, but, uh, you know, visual information, I, I thought like, oh, that might be, that might be creative. So <laughs> we'll see. So tell our listeners, tell us um, a few of, let's begin with one. 
What was one of the more kind of interesting or unique situations you found yourself in as a combat photographer? Oh, well, um, well, there, this is a non-combat thing. It was We used to document uh, U.S. military exercises as well. Um, okay. And there was a, an exercise involving, um, you know, uh, the, the movement of some, uh, you know, uh, dangerous material in Europe. And uh, it pitted regular Air Force forces against the, some of the best uh, operators that the U.S. military had. And... <laughs> This was a uh, an exercise that took place in, in Germany, and the uh, operators, as the opposing forces, um, decided that they would drive onto the base and just go right for their objective, which meant driving through the perimeter fence. <laughs> <laughs> they basically invaded a, a friendly Allied base, dri- driving through the perimeter fence to uh, to go and just beat the regular security forces. Uh, surprised everybody, uh, myself included. This was my first uh, overseas assignment. And it was also uh, the first time I had ever documented anything for the military. So to know that, uh, you know, Army Special Forces could just drive through a secure fence on, because that's who they that's who they were. That was their job. Uh, it really surprised me and it made me question everything I thought I, I'd known about the military. Or serving in the military, I didn't know that there were people who could just do whatever they wanted. (laughs) And that was your first. That was kind of your first. uh, Your first gig. That was my uh, intro to uh, documenting military exercises. I I was actually on the. uh, I was documenting the uh, the Air Force, the Blue Forces, the Friendlies. Um, Uh They just got creamed. (laughs) (laughs) Ah, that's uh, good. Tell us another one. Tell us another good story. Oh. I don't know that I have a lot of great stories. Um, I have a lot of interesting ones. Well, tell us the interesting ones. Jeez, <laughs> uh, I'm sorry. I'm a, I'm a little. Uh, this all, right. all happened so long ago. Uh, I got out in 2007. Okay. Uh, I I will tell you that uh, one time we we started a small wildfire uh, with muzzle flashes during an exercise, and uh, it was the first time ever. And this was towards the end of my career. Uh, my military career. It was the first time ever that we'd ever had to just every I'd ever seen anyone in the military just drop everything, drop all their rifles, and just switch modes to firefighting. And I get that was of course out in California, uh, but they everybody just you know in the heartbeat switched their uh, thinking from I'm playing the game to uh, I, now I have to put out a fire before it kills all of us. Yep. It's uh, so. What is military.com? Uh, military.com is a, a news and information source uh, geared toward the military, um, and it's all it's all about the military, uh, military veteran community. So we do a lot of veteran jobs uh, stuff. That's my personal uh, section of the website. Uh, but we have a lot of great reporters who are down in the Pentagon, at the White House, all over D.C. We have uh, we cover things that you know the nitty gritty that veterans care about in their lives. Veteran discounts, pay benefits. Um, you know, every time the VA has an upcoming change to its schedule of benefits, we're there. Uh, every time the VA recognizes a new, uh, you know, condition as pres- presumably presumed to be uh, of service, especially important for Vietnam veterans, um, you know, we're on top of that sort of thing. It's a massive website with a lot of information, but uh, you know, we get people who just do the 
the nitty gritty every day of going through government documents, interviewing, uh, you know, officials, me, myself, uh, as a veteran jobs editor, I'm constantly looking for programs for veterans who that will provide free training or education, certification, job placement, uh, areas that are just looking for vets. And, uh, you know, I try to get them jobs without uh, having to dip into their GI Bill benefits. You know, maybe they could pass it on to their children, which is very important. And, uh, you know, there's a little bit of something for everybody. For, for my section, I like to think that if you are getting out of the military, or you've been out for a little while, you can come to the veteran jobs section of military.com and you will be able to find some kind of free training, education, and even a job if you're looking for it. I, I even uh, interview veteran-owned businesses all the time to just kind of give veterans who are looking for uh, a future you know, a way to think outside the box. Like, Oh, I'm in, I like better. I like barbecue too. Maybe, maybe starting a barbecue rub or uh, a sauce company is my thing. Oh, you know, I could be an Amazon delivery driver, but now I'm going to start my own delivery company. I'm not just going to drive. I'm going to start my own company. And, you know, you can come to military.com and find that, find a way to do that. So, so Blake, um, today, what's, what's the job market for veterans? Good, bad, neutral, medium, so the the job market on the whole is pretty good. Uh, you know, there's a labor shortage in America. And if you're willing to do the work, uh, there's a job out there for you somewhere. And for skilled trades, especially, you know, uh, the older generation of people who knew how to do things with their hands, you know, machinists, electricians, roofers, things like that, uh, they're retiring. And there's a lack of people in that field because guys my age, we were taught growing up that you got to go to college to be respectable and that, uh, you know, skilled trades were a blue collar job that people kind of look down on. But, um, you know, that's not the case. Um, being able to do things with your hands is primary is really important. I just bought a house last year and I'm telling you, I wish I could do things that an electrician <laughs> could do. I wish I was a carpenter, you know, uh, and you can make good money doing this now. Like a lot of these skilled trades are starting at $70,000 a year or more. Yeah. And, and there are things that, uh, as far as electricians, the Electricians Union of the United States will train you for free and give you a job, place you in a job, wow. a union job. Yeah. So like that's the kind of demand that we're looking at. Uh, so job markets in general are pretty good. But for veterans, uh, veterans face the problem of underemployment, where they take a job that doesn't adequately challenge their skills, uh, their abilities, and may not pay them enough uh, you know, to adequately live the lifestyle they're used to. And that can be very detrimental to the veteran mindset. So Blake was speaking with Blake uh, Stillwell, who was a combat uh, photographer who is now with military.com on this Memorial Day weekend. Um, a couple of years ago, you wrote a article on how 12 other countries celebrate their version of Veterans Day. Um mm-hmm. What got you interested in kind of researching that and writing that? Well, I mean, I've always been kind of an internationalist. I uh, I find the way that uh, other countries celebrate, you know, their own holidays, uh, their own cultures, equally as fascinating as our own. Uh, and, you know, having served in the military, uh, the way that Memorial Day came about uh, was so uh, interesting to me because, you know, it used to be called Decoration Day. And uh, it started with people in the United States on both sides who fought in the Civil War, taking care of the gravestones of fallen soldiers uh, in their areas. 
And so it wasn't like a very big national holiday, but it became that because we made it that. And eventually they just codified what we already were doing in our communities uh, and, you know, giving us a day off, which is great. But, um, you know, that kind of evolution is, is was unique to the United States. So I was, um, you know, I, I write a lot about military culture. And I've been doing it since, um, you know, 2015. So, you know, it, it takes a lot of exploration. So I used, you know, my own interest to try to like find, find that out and relate it to other people. And uh, what I found was, you know, there's either some version of Memorial Day or, uh, you know, Veterans Day, Armistice Day uh, all over the world, which, you know, uh, is it's pretty endearing. It's pretty heartening. Any one of those countries that you kind of uh, thought had something that you that struck you? Well, um, you know, I was just going back over it uh, because I had written it a, a while ago. Uh, what really strikes me is that, uh, you know, so many of the countries involved in World War I um, have some sort of armistice day. Um, and it, it wasn't just, uh, you know, dominated by the British Empire, because a lot of these countries, uh, you know, were former Commonwealth countries. But they've really, like I said, they've really taken it to, on their own to, to, to what it means for them. So, like, I, I love that Nigeria, who used to be in the British Commonwealth, uh, celebrates uh, some version of Memorial Day. But, uh, you know, after uh, 1970, after to commemorate the end of their own civil war, they moved it to uh, uh, January 15th instead of November 11th. So they've taken this this idea and they've adapted it to their own uh, their own culture. I also love um, the Israeli. Uh, I I hope I don't uh, I don't speak uh, Hebrew. So Yom Hazikaron, uh, the day of the memory. Uh, you know, they they extended not just to veterans and to military personnel, but to people who died in terrorist attacks and politically motivated violence, you know, because uh, they have such a long history uh, with that. So they recognize that there's more to uh, memorialize than just the people who signed on to uh, fight and defend. And I think that's uh, really thoughtful. Yeah. What's interesting to me is that I, I looked at the list of of countries that celebrated and some of them uh like tend to be you know more i would say more neutral in 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 a lot of situations uh like i see denmark has mm-hmm. a day the netherlands sweden those are not countries that you usually think of major military uh powers um but even they celebrate this i yeah you know i think um it's it's in the case of Sweden, Sweden's uh, if you go back in Swedish history, Sweden gets more and more violent as you get like their their military history is uh, pretty storied. As as a matter of fact, I just wrote an article for military.com about why we should welcome Sweden into NATO uh, because they have a lot of experience fighting Russians right. uh, historically. Uh, but you know, I I think that. Uh, any society who you know recognizes that uh, freedom isn't free is going to you know want to honor the people who you know put their lives lives at risk for for their country and in the case of um, the Netherlands um, you know Dutch people are so incredibly 
they're known for tolerance, you know, but, uh, you know, if you get on the wrong side of the Dutch, again, historically, <laughs> uh, you learn that, you know, they, they can bring something to a fight. So okay. I think don't, uh, don't even don't even talk about Dutch uncles. <laughs> right. Yeah. And they're, yeah. Not, they're not so kind and gentle. <laughs> yeah. They're, you know, there's a reason we have those words and phrases, you know. Right. So, yeah. Uh, yeah, I agree. Yeah. So anyway, so Blake Stillwell, I am so glad that you took the opportunity to be with us on Just Love and she had a little bit of your experience uh, as a photographer in the military and shared with us what's going on in some other countries with regard to uh, with regard to Memorial Day. Uh, any final thing that you would like to uh, leave with our listeners before I let you go? I would say just don't forget to honor the uh, moment of silence at 3 p.m. in your local area. Uh, you know, it's I think it's great that people get to the day off to have a barbecue. And as a veteran, I salute you. I hope your burgers are tasty. But do do take that one minute to uh, recognize why you have the day off. OK, Blake Stillwell. Uh, former combat photographer in the military. Now he is editor at Veteran Jobs at military.com. Thank you so much for being with us on Just Love. Thanks for having me. Great. Tom, uh, I think uh, we'll take a break and we'll be back in just a moment. Just love. Just love God. Just love your neighbor. Just love yourself. And if we all did that, our world would be more just. It would be more compassionate. And certainly there would be less war in our world. We'll be back in just a moment on the Catholic Channel, Series XM 
Just do it. Just love. Just check out Monsignor Kevin Sullivan, who's here right now. Take it away, Monsignor. Welcome back to Just Love. Just do it. Just love God. Just love your neighbor. Just love yourself. And our world will be more just and it will be more compassionate. We talk about what's going on in the world. And this weekend, you know, we do celebrate Memorial Day in the United States. We honor those who have died in military service. We do it in a way, though, that recognizes that probably the greatest tribute we could pay to those who are in uniform in the military is to avoid war. Because in war, it is those who are in the military who suffer the greatest death, fatalities, injuries. Now, we have, we hear and we know one of the tragedies of war is that civilians also get killed, whether accidentally or intentionally, as tragically, it seems that the situation in the Ukraine is where civilians sometimes appear to be targeted by Russia. um, And that is just very, very problematic. In fact, I believe one of the soldiers there is being brought up as a war criminal because of his killing of a civilian. So while, but on these days, the best thing we can do is pray for and try to do our best to create a world in which there is uh, no war. Um, Tom, what are you going to do Memorial Day weekend? Do you have uh, plans? I know we just learned a moment of silence at 3 p.m., but uh, what do you got planned for Memorial Day? Generally, Monsignor, I go up uh, to see my folks and the family gets together for a barbecue. And one very nice thing is our local town, Pelham, has a parade. So what they do is they have a parade. They come. And uh, one thing they do is they actually read on Flanders Field. Um, So we gather and we read. And so it's very appropriate, I think, Monsignor, when you mentioned about avoiding war. They do honor those who've lost their lives from Pelham in the war. But we also read in Flanders Field, which, of course, is sort of a, a tome against war. So yeah. I think that's something very appropriate that you bring up. Yeah, it's you know, it's it's interesting. I um, I mean, my age is such that I was not around during World War Two nor Korea. But uh, I do know that um, that in different periods of our history, there's been a different kind of tension with regard to wars and particular wars. It does seem to me today we are in a place in which there is a great deal of respect for those in the military and those who kind of do risk their lives in in war. So on this Memorial Day weekend, first prayer, peace, that no more people die in war. Specific prayer for peace in Ukraine and peace also in those countries where there is internal violence with civil war and prayer for those who have given their lives in service of defending the country. Thank you for being with us on Just Love, Just Love God, Just Love Your Neighbor, Just Love Yourself. Our world will be more just and it will be more compassionate. The Catholic Channel, Sirius XM 129. You're listening to The Catholic Channel, Sirius XM 129.